Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The IRS has made considerable progress on staffing, customer service over the last couple of years. If it was a hospital patient, it might be out of the intensive care unit, but still in the hospital. For a review of the IRS's top challenges as it hits the 2024 filing season, we turn to the national taxpayer advocate, Aaron Collins, in studio. Ms. Collins, good to have you with us. Good to be here, Tom. Thank you. Well, let's get right to it. You have issued your annual report to Congress and outlining the problems. And even though a lot of the processing and customer service issues have been mitigated, they're not zeroed out, are they? No, I think you can say that we are at pre-pandemic levels. And the challenge is that's great because the last three years have been incredibly difficult for taxpayers, practitioners, IRS employees, IRS. But the challenge is pre-pandemic levels were not great for taxpayers. So I think we're back to where we started and now we need to improve. And you have pointed out in your top set of problems is processing. And were you mainly talking about paper processing, which even though it's a small percentage, still kind of bedevils the agency? Or do they have electronic issues also? Yeah, so this year for the returns that were filed in 2023, both the electronic and paper original returns seem to go through without any real hitches as long as there weren't errors or problems with the return. So those payments were being made timely. The challenge the IRS had was amended returns and correspondence. Those spiked during 2023. And so by year end, they had an excess of two plus million amended returns and various correspondence and identity theft was also a big issue issue that occurred in 2023 with respect to overaged inventory or backlog. Yeah, so the amended returns then piled up on them, and many of those were left in piles, so to speak. Yeah, the challenge with the amended returns is a lot of people are not aware that the customer service representatives, those are the folks when you call the 800 number to speak with the IRS, they wear multiple hats. They answer the phone, they help taxpayers, but they also sort of on their downtime process that paper whether that be amended returns or correspondence. And the challenge the IRS had in order to reach a higher level of service in 2023, they did not process paper. So they answered more calls at the expense of creating a paper backlog. And is there an issue with processing paper in a telework setting? Can you take it home with you? Unfortunately, no. The folks at work, paper itself, they're physically in the campuses in the building. But a lot of the returns are electronic, and so therefore people can work those from other locations. Yeah, so they have a telework policy in place, and people that are going on a case-by-case or file-by-file basis, they don't need to be in the IRS office if it's all online. That's correct. And where are they, by the way, with respect to telework at this point? It depends on the position, depends on the person. For example, new employees, they are required to be in the office. But if you're more seasoned, you can have an agreement where, again, depending on the position, but you might be able to do a situation where you work two days per pay period in the office, and then you can work remotely on the other days. And there are some positions within the IRS that you actually could work full-time remote. All right. And then that gets to the staffing issue. And you're saying that even though they've had a lot of hiring since some of the money came through the Inflation Reduction Act, 
Are they where they should be at staffing? Because you pointed out that's still a challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, if you look at the numbers, IRS has done a fair amount of hiring, but a lot of that's been internal, which is great because people get promoted. Those are good for the internal folks. But external, we just haven't brought enough people in. We have had an increase the last two years. It's been in the single digits when you look at the net-net number for those who left versus those coming in. So they're making small progress, but they really need to focus on getting the right people in. I mean, public service, there are a lot of people, that's a passion for them, but not everyone wants to come in and be a public servant. So it really is how do we entice these folks to see that giving back and working for your community is a good thing, and that's a challenge the IRS has. But you also pointed out that they need the capacity to do the ingestion, the finding, the hiring of people in the human capital office itself is not fully staffed. Correct. And that is a challenge because even the ones that individuals come in that are interested in a job, the time from they make their first inquiry through the application from when they actually start is too long. It's too long of a process. And especially if you look at folks that are on the lower end of the salary spectrum, they can match that elsewhere. So they're not going to sit around and wait three, four, five months in order to get the position. A hired skilled individual may be coming in for a purpose. They may be more interested. But again, the large percentage of IRS folks, they want a job, they want a salary, they want to give back, but they're not going to wait. Sure. And then there is the issue of special authorities. For example, Veterans Affairs had all kinds of special authorities to hire people more rapidly. The IRS has some of those. I think you found that they don't really use those tools very well. Well, they have them. And to the extent that they apply for particular jobs, they'll go out and do like what they would refer to as a jobs fair. And they have the ability to hire people on the spot. But the challenge, again, is they still have to go through all the security checks, everything from background to fingerprinting. And so even though the offer comes in a lot quicker, they still have all the back-end processing that has to take place before they can start. We're speaking with Erin Collins. She's the National Taxpayer Advocate at the IRS. And before we get to some of the other issues, do you get the sense that the leadership under Danny Warfel is alert to these things and is kind of approaching them with a sense of urgency? Yeah, I think the additional funds really are both transformational and incentivize people because for the first time in over a decade, they're really looking at the future rather than just trying to put out fires every day. So we still have a few fires that they're working on, but they really are looking forward as to how do we do things better? How do we improve service? How do we be transformational is the term that we use in the building on a daily basis. Sure. And one of those areas is customer service. And we know the disaster of 20, 21, 22, when you couldn't get the phone answered, et cetera. They've come quite a ways back. But you also found some issues with the way they measure that metric, that maybe it's not quite as good as it seems. Well, we have a difference of opinion on how you determine level of service. But my real challenge is I think it's a horrible measure, period, regardless if you apply our methodology or the IRS's methodology. You really need to look at the question of if you're calling, how long are you on hold? Do you get your question answered? Are they able to move whatever your issue is forward? I don't think the IRS should be focusing on how long, how many people are on the calls, how, whether it's a hang-up or a not hang-up, or whether or not you go to a chat bot. You know, let's look at the quality. And quality is judged by the taxpayers, what their needs are. And I want to switch to the information technology modernization, which has been going on now for two generations, basically. And maybe we should just say, let's stop calling it modernizing. <laughs> but call it a continuous process of keeping up to date because that's what they've really been doing, even though there's a yeah. formal program, tax systems modernization. It's still a challenge. 
It is a challenge. When you think about the amount of the volume of what the IRS has, individual tax returns are in excess of $160 million a year. Then you have business returns of approximately, let's say, $20 million a year. And then you have hundreds of millions of information forms, other types of things. It is a heavy lift. And they have that information going back to the dawn of time, in essence. So their systems, it's not like you can just quickly you know, turn on a dime. Uh, they have a lot of information, a lot of material that they need to work with. So uh, that is a challenge for the IRS. So I'd like to go back and use the word modernization. They need to modernize and just not just do quick fixes throughout the year. Because they're on their about fifth or sixth, maybe seventh attempt at modernizing the assembly language master file system. Right. And they've tried that since the 90s, and the projects always sort of fall apart. Do you think they'll get it done this time around? It's on the short list. And so for the individual master file, I believe they're looking at the next couple of years that they will be able to transform the IMF program. And after that, they got to work on the business modernization. Of course, they could always just train 100 people to use assembly, and they would never have to modernize it and keep them around for the next 25 That's years. That's probably not the most efficient way to do it, but yes, they could do that. Like training steam engine operators, I guess. And finally, you have a long list of legislative recommendations. Let's just maybe discuss the top three other than changing the tax code to five lines. Right. Um, I think a lot of people would like to have the tax code change, but I don't think we're going to get that across the finish line. So some of the things that we focus on, and if you're looking for sort of the greatest impact to taxpayers, I would put requesting Congress or requiring Congress to initiate legislation for non-credential preparers. When you look at the percentage of returns that are filed by preparers, it's about 50%. And of those, a very high percentage of are non-credentialed. So when you think about it, you go to a beautician, they have a license. You go to a doctor, they have a license. I mean, basically, you know, what you do every day, someone has to have license, education, other types of requirements. So these are people handling your financial transactions. And I think it's very important. The other challenge what we're seeing is, and we did as part of a study, looked at the earned income tax credit. And it's a very high percentage of error rate are prepared by non-credentialed individuals. So again, they're harming taxpayers, they're harming tax administration, and we really need to get that enacted. And I think that, to me, it would make a huge difference, especially for the lower-income folks that tend to rely on non-credential individuals. One of the other areas that I'd like to see that would be taxpayer-favorable is the tax court. The United States tax court tends to hear cases that taxes are due. When Congress originally set up the system, refunds went to the district court and the claims court. Deficiency or tax due went to the tax court. Tax court specifically has judges that do nothing but taxes. We'd like to see the court have their jurisdiction expanded to include not only tax due, but refund situations. Um, When you look at the docketed cases in the tax court, 91%, and that's a big number, 91% represent themselves. And so we'd like to see the same situation for refund cases. A lot of individuals may not have the financial means to go into district court or claims court. In my opinion, in my experience, I would not suggest anyone go into those courts without representation. But the representation could be more than the refund. Exactly. And a lot of these refunds are smaller dollars. So if you have a $500,000 refund, you're not going to pay an attorney in order to go into district court or claims court. So give those people an opportunity to have the tax court hear those issues. So those are two of the ones that I would really like Congress to focus on. 
And do you get a good ear when you send your report up and when you talk to lawmakers? We have interest. I just think it's difficult sometimes to get legislation passed. And so we are going to continue working on that with the members of Congress. We have over 60, I think it's 65 or 66 recommendations this year. And a lot of them are just simple fixes. And others are more transformational, such as giving tax court refund jurisdiction. That's a little bit more of a policy decision. But some of them are just clean fixes that we could make to improve the experience for taxpayers and improve tax administration. Sounds like we could use an omnibus bill for the IRS. That would be a great idea. Aaron Collins is the National Taxpayer Advocate at the IRS. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with links to more information, including her report to Congress, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few. And you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes. And I... I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um... This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.